From a place beyond place, from a time beyond time, it's art from the very edge of the universe. I'm talking to Richard Penner, the man behind the beautiful, ethereal, and weird microfiction podcast, The Infinite Now. We're going to talk about art, love, and deadly candy. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. If such a thing as a traditional podcast audio drama existed, The Infinite Now would not be it. It's a beautiful piece of experimental fiction that figures itself as dispatches from a man called The Time Scanner, broadcasting from Time Crystal Omega, a mysterious arcane watchtower or prison at the heat death of the universe. The lengths of episodes are variable. In fact, they're all just as long as they need to be. The pieces themselves range from microfiction in various guises to interviews with fictitious people to what I'd call brief philosophical treatises. We're going to play a couple of pieces here. Your Aunt Beth, The Divide, and The Manual for Emotions. Then I'm going to talk to Richard Penner, the man behind the project. Let's hop on in, starting with Your Aunt Beth. Incoming transmission from the Time Scanner. There is an alternate universe where hyperinflation has rendered the U.S. dollar worthless. But the demand for limited edition Beanie Babies has continued to rise since the mid-1990s. Instead of wallets, people carry around backpacks filled with plush animal friends to barter with. Every transaction is a sentimental goodbye. In this universe, your Aunt Beth is living like J-fucking-Z. Transmission complete. That was your Aunt Beth. Now let's move to a slightly longer piece called The Divide. Incoming transmission from the Time Scanner. The aging gene can be turned off. Custom replacement organs that are grown from your own cells and cannot be rejected after transplanted can be grown in the laboratory. We are decades away from immortality here in 2015 where you're listening. But immortality will not come cheaply. So this technology will only be accessible to the wealthy. It will be debated if hoarding a cure for death is the same as genocide. But soon the debating won't matter. The rich will tweak their genes, live to be thousands of years old. When choosing a mate, they will choose other immortals. The differences between humans and rich humans will multiply until they are altogether different and genetically incompatible. Class warfare will become speciation. The rich, 
Homo Plutus will protect their evolutionary niche from the rival species with blatant genocide. Among the poor, Homo sapiens, there will be massive outbreaks of epidemics to which Homo Plutus find themselves immune. A hundred thousand years ago, humans lived alongside Neanderthals. But not for long. In direct competition, one species wins and one species dies. In the coming war, the Homo sapien will have the advantage in numbers, but the Homo plutus will have an advantage in technology and resources. It is unclear who will win their place on this earth, but it is clear that the lines in the sand are being drawn right now. You may be in the last American generation that has the option of upward mobility. You're the last with freedom to choose sides in the coming war. Place your bets. If you wish to switch sides, now may be a good time to start pinching those pennies and investing wisely. Contrarywise, if you side with the humans, now may be a good time to stand your ground. I stand with the humans. I stand with the humans. I am a human. I stand with the humans. I stand with the humans. I stand with the humans. I am human. Transmission complete. That was The Divide from The Infinite Now. And finally, before our interview, let's play The Manual for Emotions. Incoming transmission from The Time Scanner. There was once an instruction manual for emotions. It was lost along with the Library of Alexandria. But last time that I was there, I found a copy. It was buried deep in the rare scrolls wing. In the basement and down a dark hallway unlit by lanterns. to check out the rare scrolls wing, you'll have to bring your own torch, like I did. 
the torch and the lighter to light it with, came in my time agent mission inventory, along with detailed instructions. Past the locked vault of forbidden Bibles, on an unmarked wooden shelf between a third century encyclopedia of witty comebacks and right next to a metaphysical repair manual titled Exploded View of the Soul. That's where you'll find it. The Owner's Manual for Human Emotions. I can't believe this is all going to be gone soon. Well, it would be a shame to go home empty-handed. I got out my journal and a pencil. Sir. Sir, excuse me. This area is restricted. Sir, I'm afraid you'll have to come with us. Sir, sir, you forgot your torch, sir. That is how I burned down the Library of Alexandria. Hey, don't blame me. I was only a soldier following my orders. Horrible, horrible things are asked of soldiers like us time agents. Heartbreaking things. And sometimes the only comfort we can find is the hope that we will be stronger individuals once we recover from what we go through. And I know that physicists say information can never really be lost. Even when information is swallowed into a black hole, it always reemerges somewhere in an altered form, like a phoenix rising from the ashes. And every tale burned, and every philosophy to blow away like smoke from the ruins of human history has re-emerged time and time again, remixed to fit its new context as the window dressing of the ages is rotated. And I did manage to save a few lines from the Manual for Human Emotions. Here, I'll read them to you. One. Emotions are a sword you can only learn how to wield through error. Two, slice yourself to ribbons, die, be reborn stronger, repeat as needed. Three, once you've died enough times, you'll realize that you'll always be reborn. This gives you confidence in your abilities not only to avoid death, but also to die gracefully. Four, after enough emotion deaths, you will be an invincible emotion gladiator. 
You are the only gladiator with a killing sword. Only your own blade can harm you. You are always in control of the sword of your emotions. The sword is never in control of you, even though it may feel that way sometimes. Common mistakes. The following are three common mistakes in training to become an invincible emotion gladiator. One, fear the blade and refuse to touch it. Two, give up before you become a master. Three, throw yourself onto your own blade. Avoid these three pitfalls and continue on with the steps above and you cannot fail. That's all I have written. That's all I managed to save. Maybe the burning down of the origin of mankind made way for a history where we had one more inch on the endless battleground against our temporal enemies. Maybe not. But just like the Manual for Human Emotions tells us, some things have to die and be reborn differently. Each time civilization crumbles and rebuilds itself brick by brick, it's rebuilt stronger. Each story rebuilt concept by concept, character by character. Every Shakespeare or George Lucas finds an ember of thought that's been adrift in the ether since before the library burned, and they rekindle it until it rises again into something more durable, like a phoenix or like this drawing that I have here in the margins of my notes I took from the Manual for Human Emotions. My quick sketch here was based on the detailed etchings illuminated in the manuscript. Figures with severed limbs rising from pools of their own blood until they're radiant with an angelic light of confidence. In my sketches, though, the invincible emotion gladiators just look like that cartoon guy from the IKEA assembly instructions. This has been and will always be B B B B B The Infinite Now Transmission complete. So you've got a taste for the Infinite Now and the Time Scanner. But let's take a peek behind the curtain and get a look at Richard Penner the writer and multimedia artist who developed the show. That's coming right up. I had a chance to interview Richard recently. Take a listen. Richard Penner, welcome. Thank you for coming on Radio Drama Revival. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So to start with, I want to ask you, how long have you been working on this character? Because I, I found the blog, and there are entries that date back at least to 2011 uh, that I can see like fed right into Time Scanner. Like, so how long have you been thinking about this, these dispatches from this character? Yeah, I've been uh, making stuff on the internet related to Time Scanner for a long time. Um, like, I'd say the last 10 years or something. Okay. Um, and it slowly evolved into an actual character. Um, there was no actual uh, storyline. There wasn't any 
you know, specific canon until I started the podcast. But I'd been playing with that character for a super long time. It started, actually, I started making um, sort of DIY music under the name The Time Scanner Disaster back, like, forever ago. And um, the name came from Tops cards. There were these Tops dinosaurs attack cards that came out okay. in, the, in the 80s. And they were awesome. They were just a bunch of, like, pictures of dinosaurs killing people in brutal ways um, on each card. Sort of sort of like the Mars Attacks cards. Okay, and sure. The second card in that series was, uh, it just said, Time Scanner Disaster on it. And um, I lost the rest of the cards, but I always had that one around my house. And so, you know, when when I started getting into doing stuff on the internet, I was like, oh, I need a screen name. And I, you know, picked that and was like, oh, I'm the time scanner. And that sort of just uh, evolved into an actual character. So you studied art in school, right? You studied printmaking. Yeah, that's right. Um, I was a printmaker and painter. How How did you find your way into audio fiction? I think that... I never really saw much of a division between different mediums. So even okay. when even when I was studying printmaking and painting, I was also uh, doing theater and I did some some set design for a couple plays. And uh, I did a bit of everything. And you just need to pick a specific major, right? So that's the one I picked. Mm-hmm. But um, I was doing printmaking mainly and I was doing, you know, I was doing this beautiful work with all of these gorgeous toxic chemicals, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like deadly candy when you open up a thing of ink and, oh, it was gorgeous. But I started to get sick from using it. I started to develop allergies that I didn't have before. And so I had to move away from, well, I had to move away from doing that specific type of visual art. I still make visual art sometimes. Would you say that time scanner is meant to be that the art of time scanner is meant to be consumed um, in all of its media simultaneously? Like, what do you say to people that only uh, listen to the podcast, for example? The podcast is certainly um, that's the primary thing at this point. That's the only medium that I think I'm making a very um, cohesive story and that has a set canon. Uh, the tweets, you know, like sometimes I'm knee, sometimes I'm time scanner. It's basically just my thoughts. I just happen to think in character sometimes. Um, and the visual art, well, I'm going to be making visual art to send out to Patreon supporters, and that will be in canon. But I think that I just work in lots of different mediums because that's the way my brain works. I am not going to tell anyone how to ingest that, right? You can do whatever you want. But for me, whenever I've tried to just focus on one thing, I'm like, oh, I'm just making a podcast. Now I'm not going to make visual art and uh, I'm not going to write music. Um, as soon as I do that, uh, it's, it's like all of the creativity dries up. So I just have to, I have to work on it all. So that's just part of my creative process, I guess. When when you conceive of a time scanner piece, what makes you decide whether or not it's going to be a podcast bit or if it's only like a tweet storm or if it's going to be a, a piece of visual art? I think it's based on um, how long that idea can sustain attention. Like, um, like one of the things I really like about the podcast is that I've been doing some really short episodes too. Like I think I have a two minute episode and to me, that's like, 
that's perfect. Like, you know, some ideas don't need to go on for 20 minutes. Some ideas are just perfect as two minutes. Get them done, move on. And so I think that that's how I determine that. Like some things I'm like, oh, that's a great tweet, but that's not going to make an episode. And some things I'm like, well, this is a really great piece of imagery. I think I'm going to make a, you know, fictional propaganda poster based on that. So what, what, did, you, what did you grow up listening to? Well, I mean, as far as audio drama goes, it wasn't a huge part of my life. Mainly it the Star Wars audio drama that they did. I listened to that a ton because I was a gigantic Star Wars nerd growing up and still am. Uh, it's a problem that's endemic in men my age. <laughs> and, um, and then there was the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which were, you know, they were pretty much my favorite books growing up. I read those constantly. And so that audio drama also was pretty great. And I guess, I mean, I hadn't, I haven't really listened to it or read that in forever, but I, looking back, I guess that informs Time Scanner quite a bit. I can see that for sure. The kind of arch, like slanted perspective on everything. Right. And taking a sci-fi idea and stretching it to absurdity, um, but still having some sort of nugget of something you're saying buried in there. Yeah. Cause there's, there's definitely like a lot of just really bitter social commentary embedded in Hitchhiker's Guide. Oh, yeah. That I also see in Infinite now. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's fun. I mean, you know, having something to say is the reason you make something, right? So it's it's nice to uh, to bury those things in there. And in some ways, I think that comedy and narrative for me is just like, it's a tool. It's like a, it's the the fish hook that you use to get an idea to stick in someone's brain for a while. Mm-hmm. Like you could just tell someone your idea straight out and it'll probably go in one ear and out the other, but make it really funny or really weird. And it'll keep, you know, rattling around in their brain like, like Pac-Man. This is, I I had this um, like anti-Trump rant that I went on, on Twitter. I mean, Kel is like who, 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 well, reinventing the wheel, Reinstrom. But like, uh, (laughs) The, the the question that I asked was like, you know, do you really think that that Donald Trump has a better imagination than you? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. um, which is I, I don't know. I, I kind of want to see if we can make that stick in terms of making progressive art that catches in people's heads. I like this fish hook thing. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to see an artist in the White House. Right. I mean, I guess George W. Bush did portraits. Um I don't know if that's just propaganda to get me to stop hating him because I see these cute photos of him as an old man doing portraits and, uh, or, you know, or maybe that's just what he loves. Maybe that's true. But, um, but I don't, I'm not sure if we've had other artists in the white house for a while, but I think that, I think that creative thought is vital to, um, to being able to empathize with other people, which obviously we would prefer our president be able to do and with being able to come up with creative solutions. Thomas Jefferson, I guess. Thomas Jefferson, he was an artist and uh, an architect, I think, right? Yeah. Can I tell you something really dorky about Thomas Jefferson? Do it. Uh, so my, my girlfriend Jillian has worked in a bunch of different special collections libraries. And when we lived in Chicago, um, she worked at the Newberry, which is in the Gold Coast neighborhood. Uh, and it's the this private open to the public special collections library. And she got to handle Thomas Jefferson's copy of the Federalist Papers, 
Uh-huh. And so the thing that she told me about it was that on every page that was numbered with a one or a seven, Jefferson would turn the one or the seven into a T and then write a J next to it. Just <laughs> idly as he was as he was leafing through this text that he probably wasn't super crazy about, right? Yeah. It was like his version of doodling in the margins of your, you know, of your physics notes in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. I want to see, um, I'm imagining Thomas Jefferson uh, on the phone with someone in the 80s with the yellow pages open, uh, connecting <laughs> all of the zeros to each other, you know, filling, mm-hmm. filling in all of the, the loopy bits and the K's and P's. Did you spend a lot of time on the phone as a kid, just like kind of coloring in the phone book? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I I love doodles. You know, I think that um, some of my doodles became some of my best art because, you know, I would, I would, you know, I went to art school, so I tried to take it seriously and I would try to put all of this thought into something and make something, you know, really, uh, really frontal lobby, you know, like really intentional. But like when I look back, the best work was the stuff that came straight out of the subconscious mind. And that was, that's the stuff that you do while you're doing something else that just leaks out. You know, doodles are the best. And I think um, a lot of the fiction I'm doing these days is like that too. Like, um, you know, I have a desk job and I am typically pretty busy at my desk job, but I have, you know, 10 seconds here and there to just, you know, type out a bizarre phrase. And at the time that I type it out, I don't even know what it means, but I can go back later and stretch this thing out and try to figure out what it means. And I think that works um, pretty well for me, at least it's working like in my early twenties. I, when I, uh, when I put aside visual art and started to be like, I'm going to be a writer, you know, none of that stuff was any good, partially because I was too young and partially because I was taking it too seriously. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to make this be an important thing. Whereas the things that just leak out of the backside of your mind tend to be always the best stuff. And that's kind of like the um, the occult angle we were talking about before we started recording. Yeah. This this kind of witchy, sideways, subconscious mind dictating the art that you create. I think that's definitely true, yeah. I think that uh, I'm, I'm not a big occultist, but, um, but I do think that learning a little bit about that stuff it can really help you learn tools to use creatively. Because in lots of ways, it is about connecting with the subconscious mind, which you know, if you're a believer in witchcraft stuff, then ties together with the the greater universe up above. And you can give or take that bit, but um, but you can learn a lot of tools for getting ideas from, you know, seemingly the ether, but really the dark side of your skull. Well, what do you what do you mean by that? Like, what are some what are some practical applications of that? I think that like meditation a lot of times, the stuff that comes out of that. Oh, actually, that was something. I went to see David Lynch talk some years ago, and um, he was on tour trying to convince everyone to do transcendental meditation. And I went largely just to see this weirdo guy talk. And he, he would go on and on and try to explain that he gets all of his ideas through meditation, you know, which... Um, he will describe as this really blissful experience, right? Like, you know, you, and so he would try, he would try to explain, you know, it, what it's like to do transcendental meditation. And he would, 
he would always stammer. He wouldn't be able to do it in words at all. And he would just like sort of stutter and be like, it's, it's just, it's just bliss, you know? <laughs> and he said, it's just bliss like 50 times. But someone stood up uh, at question and answer time and they said, if you're such a blissful person, then why are your movies so fucked up? <laughs> and, you know, and his response was, every story needs a conflict. <laughs> Which I thought was great. But I think that visualization is one of the main tools of occult practices. And there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of Kung Fu mind practicing to be able to visualize something clearer and also to go under the belief, whether it's a true belief or not, that these things are coming from outside, lets them be ideas that your own biological brain you don't think would be able to do that. And so it enables you to come up with ideas that are outside of your sense of uh, limitations. Cool. Richard, are you ready to move on to some of the weirder questions I've got written down? If you've got weirder than this, I want to hear them. All right. When I ask you to visualize time, what do you see? Yeah. Okay. I'm totally going to get into my conception of time in this show. And I, um, it's and right now I'm, I'm struggling with my view of time is really complicated and... <laughs> Um, trying to do this without diagrams is going to be tough. But basically, time is a living organism okay. that we're living inside. And through our decisions, we choose which branch that we go on. But there are infinite branches. And then imagination is a sort of tool, a sort of technology that life has created in order to predict different Futures. It's sort of a, a mapping technique to see all of the different points on all of the different branches so that if you see a particular future that you want for yourself, you can sort of use your imagination like a timeline GPS to get you there, right? And you're like, I have to make this decision here. I have to make this decision here. I have to maybe break off this relationship that isn't perfect so that I'll be free to do this other thing. And, and you sort of um, work your way there. I need to uh, move on from this dead-end job, and I need to submit some short stories to the publications. And, um, and you can sort of work your way there. And it's not a perfect GPS, right? It'll just sort of get you in the right direction. And maybe some people are able to guide themselves perfectly. Myself, it's like um, it's like guiding one of those old wooden sleds, right? You like you can move that little bar back and forth and choose which direction you go in, but that doesn't guarantee you're not going to hit some trees along the way. This this tree analogy, yes, um, reminds me very much of Michael Shabin's Summerland. If you've ever read Summerland, oh, I did, yes, uh, a long time ago. So there's the the idea that. You know, the universe is this world tree and you can travel to other dimensions where the branches rub up against each other. It's like a pleaching, I think he calls it. Right. Yeah, I, it's been a while, but I feel like there were similar ideas in uh, the Dark Tower series, too. It seems like there was a, an omniverse of lots of different dimensions. Um, maybe I should reread those. The first book was great. Did I answer your time question? I think so, okay. yeah. 
like a infinite time tree imagination GPS. Exactly. I mean, I don't need a diagram for that. That that checks out for me. (laughs) Question two. Yes. Why do you think love exists? Why do I think love exists? Love. Okay. Uh, So I'm going to, I wish I could draw you another diagram for what love is (laughs) for me. Okay. So each of us have a bubble that goes around our body. And this bubble encompasses our sense of self. It's what we would protect with our life. Okay. Okay. And when you love someone else, what you do is you extend your bubble of self-protection around someone else saying, I will protect you with my life as well. And sometimes that can be mutual, which is ideal. Sometimes it only goes one way. Um, There's lots of different variations of this, but that's what I think it is. I think it's as far as a a biological tool, it would probably be so that you can uh, protect those that carry your gene, you know, your children and uh, the person you're going to have more children with so that they can go on and make more children of their own and pass along your genes. What is money for? And is that even the right question? Yeah, money is systematic inequality. Go on. (laughs) It's just a a system so that some people can think that they deserve more than other people. And um, this idea of deserving something, in my mind, is the root of all evil. It's, uh, you know, it can either go to, I have more and that's because I deserve it, a sort of uh, self-justification for why you um, have this inequality that you have more than someone else or that person over there, you know, deserves to, uh, you know, have horrible things happen to them because they've done horrible things. But, you know, it's just perpetuating uh, inequality and unfairness and um, cruelty. So money is the uh, symbolic way that we have that system working in our, in our economy, in our society. Um, these little meaningless pieces of paper, they don't mean anything. And these days, who even uses paper money most of the time? It's just debit cards or Apple Pay. You wave your phone around and there's no meaning in that act or in those objects. It's uh, just a way of transactionally deciding who can have more than someone else. How would you prefer to organize society? I don't know which systems would work. I mean, ideally, we would just all have more compassion and want to take care of each other more. I know that that sounds a little hippie-ish, but I, you know, ideally, that's what would happen. Um, I really like, as an idea, this, uh, there's an idea in Cory Doctorow's book, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. Uh Uh-huh. Reputational, uh, what is it? Reputational currency? Yeah, exactly. Woofy. It was called Woofy. Woofy. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, basically everyone sort of has um, augmented reality goggles on that keep track of their, of their, you know, their goodwill currency. And someone that is just a, a good guy that everyone loves, helps people out. Maybe he'll change your tire for you. You know, this guy is going to have lots of Woofy. And because of that, he'll he'll get farther and he'll have more resources. And I think that having people just be genuinely enjoyable, good people as currency would just be awesome. And I may be saying that because I think that I would score pretty highly on that. 
<laughs> I think that I would have more luck at being wealthy under this system than under the current system. Yeah, because I remember thinking that I liked that idea from Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, uh, but also that I was concerned that people are, who are just sort of naturally awkward or brittle wouldn't do as well in a reputational economy, and that that might therefore privilege people that are kind of wacky and funny and outgoing. Yeah, I think that that, that is true. Um, or some people, you know, we've all been to middle school. We know that some of the most popular kids are not good people. So <laughs> right. uh, that that is a problem, yeah. Like what if what if the, you know, the moral system of your little economy is off? Like, oh, yeah, Jerry has like 40,000 woofy because he just gave Lewis uh, a swirly. Totally. And that's awesome, right? But it's not. I think that you're pointing out the yeah. I think that's a big flaw in the system. I think that makes sense. Or um, it, what, what we're getting at now isn't much different than the attention economy. You know, the so-called attention mm-hmm. economy that we have. Um, like my son watches. My son's 11, and he watches tons of YouTube. And um, I have to constantly be like, oh, don't don't watch that guy. You know, that guy's horrible. And it's because these, you know, a lot of these people are making good money off of the ads from YouTube, and so it becomes this reinforcer to do anything that gets attention. You know, there's at least when you're watching television, which you know we can all agree is mind control in its own way. But it sure, sure. it all reinforces a set system of. Um, of shared ideals, right? Like be decent to one another, don't murder people. Right. For the most part, every episode reinforces these. And none of that exists on YouTube um, because it's just anything that gets clicks. So you, you'll have people being horrible to each other and it, you know, it, it'll get people to tune in. So I'm curious, to what degree are some of the ideas in Infinite Now legitimately things that you believe about the future. Like, what do you think the future of robot-human interaction looks like? What do you think the future of wealth looks like? I think that we can guess, but I don't think that we really have any idea about the future. I don't think that we Mm -hmm. ever have had any good idea about the future. I think that um, futurists, for the most part, are describing the present. They're, They're describing the current concepts for what um, the future can have. And, I mean, we can... Maybe it's like weather forecasts. Like you can forecast the next week's weather, but you can't forecast the year 2047's weather. So most of my ideas are just a way of talking about the present. I mean, obviously, I think that artificial intelligence is going to keep uh, getting more prominent. I think that um, our jobs will continually be replaced. And I think that universal basic income makes sense. Uh, This is a system that... We should already have some variation of that now when you look at all of the wealth that was created from automation. um, All of that wealth is being stolen from us, the people, for the people at the top that own these companies. And this will continue, right? I mean, it'll boil down to one person having a job and having all of the wealth in the world and the rest of the people starving at this rate, right? That's the path we're down. So it should be that we are all working, you know, everyone on earth working 10 hour weeks doing something. And that wealth is spread equally among all of us. Um, So that has to change or um, society doesn't look good at this point. Um, Trying to think of what other predictions I have for the future. That that 
Homo sapiens would diverge into two separate species, where the rich would be one immortal species and the poor would just be ordinary humans. That really does worry me. I think that um, you look at the the price of of healthcare, and already, you know, it's like, well, if you're if you're rich, then why not? Uh, you know, like David Rockefeller is on his ninth heart, and he's you know in his nineties, right? And it's like, holy crap! Sure, we all <laughs> we already have people that are living uh, beyond what they should be because of technology, just because they're rich. And I I do worry once we get into gene splicing uh, humans that we will begin to diverge. I mean, already just like the basic philosophies of life, we have rich people living in a world that we don't live in. Right. I mean, it already like socially and psychologically, we are different species, it seems like. So I worry that that will become physical, that all of our ideas will become physical eventually is uh, our own twilight zone. Uh, so to go back to your thought about the, the attention economy, mm-hmm. um, in 2011, you wrote, I'm going to quote, quote your blog here, um, the Internet has changed the way we ingest information and entertainment. But it's not ADD. It's the result of a new cost-benefit analysis. We're developing better information fuel efficiency through selective intake. The best authors of the 21st century will be concept refineries, pumping out high-octane concentrate with no impurities. Next-gen poets will be nanotech linguists, capable of compressing Anna Karenina into a limerick. Uh, To what extent is this true for you? How do you experience the Internet? And do you find that you have trouble sitting down to read books these days? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think that I have tried to do that with tweets more so in the past. I think there were specific years when I viewed tweets as art. Um, 2012 was an especially good year, good vintage for tweets. It was, <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a sort of wherever poetry meets comedy and condensed down really tight. And that was nice. I, and I think through doing that, I've learned a lot about writing like before then I had an adverb problem and you just can't fit adverbs into a tweet. So that's helped. <laughs> that's true. And I think that I'm trying to do that now with the show that I can do a, a short couple minute episode and feel like I really got something across in that. And I don't feel the need to pad it like a Stephen King 800 page novel. You know, the, the idea is good. Put it out there. As far as the attention economy, I feel like we have sort of a relationship economy as far as um, artists go. You know, those of us that are creating things, we make things and we share it on the internet. And, you know, maybe we make a buck here and there. But the main thing we do is we meet other artists and we can meet people from all over the world. And uh, that is truly remarkable. We can find collaborators. I can get voices for my show just by, you know, sending a message online. And that sort of sense of community is really difficult to do outside of that. Like I remember getting out of art school And, um, you know, in art school, you have this natural community of people around you. And then once I was outside of it, I was like, where are all the people? You know, like, I'm going to make stuff alone in my kitchen, and then no one's ever going to see it. And um, I was pretty late coming to the internet, because I didn't have a desk job until 10 years ago. And so once I got a desk job, you know, you're sitting in front of the screen all day long, sitting in a chair like the time scanner stuck in his time crystal, not able to leave, but able to see everything in the infinite omniverse around him. And so through doing that, I, you know, 
met tons of people and it's been amazing. I can travel anywhere in the world I want and find someone to stay with. And it's, it's, uh, if you use the block technique on Twitter, well, it, uh, becomes this, <laughs> this amazing way of gathering a loving community all over the world. Sure. To what degree do you abide by the manual for human emotions? And if we could just recap that really quick, what are the what are the rules of the manual for human emotions? Oh gosh, um, can you remember them off the top of your head? So I think it's uh, emotions are a sword that only you can wield. Um, the only person who can kill you with the sword is you. You cut yourself to ribbons and uh, are reborn anew until you become a sword master. I think was part of it. Yeah. I think that I strive for that, but it's tough, right? But I do think that um, when it comes to emotions, you just have to experience them. You can't wall yourself off to them. Or you can, but you're not going to learn to be a master at them. So that's a problem a lot of us get when we're really hurt, whether it's we you know, lose someone we love or whatever, to wall ourselves off. But the correct thing to do if you want to be a, a sword master of emotions is to just go out there and keep getting hurt. And to eventually you'll learn sort of the rhythm of getting hurt and recovering and you're okay. And once you see that you're okay, even though it hurt a lot, you're okay with giving your heart to the next person. And the same goes for making art, you know, making art, you, you get a lot of rejection when you first make stuff and, uh, that can be really, really hard. And mm-hmm. then you eventually learn. Just keep making it, keep sharing it with the world, and eventually it will find an audience. Eventually people will start to see it, and hopefully they'll get something out of it, and you'll form bonds with people that are enjoying it. To what degree does masculinity and emotional regulation intersect with emotional labor for you? Hmm. I'm trying to think if I have an answer for that. I've just been thinking about this a lot. There was like a meta filter thread about it, and I've just been thinking about the yeah, go on tell me tell me a little bit more, and then I'll the way that people that have been socialized in a traditionally masculine way outsource their emotional regulation to other people, usually women mm-hmm. and like I've been thinking about all the like emotional processing that I've like tried to teach myself to do, and i re- I really liked the idea that. You know, the only person who is in control of your emotions is you. But then I also thought about how some people make other people control their emotions for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel lucky in that, you know, I was I was raised in a blue collar family. Uh, my dad was in most ways very typically masculine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he worked on cars all day long. He had broad shoulders, loved football. But he was genuinely an extremely loving person, um, extremely affectionate with me. And so he was a perfect model for, um, for you can be a man in the ways that are good and you can uh, reject the parts that are BS, honestly, and you can really be honest emotionally with people. Uh, I feel really blessed that I had him as a model for that. Um, that being said, I, I grew up in sort of a, you know, a, a small town with lots of macho going on. And um, it was tough for me to be around all of that. And I think in lots of ways, I, through my adolescence and teenage years, defined myself in opposition to what is masculine. 
and had to then at some point reevaluate and be like, well, you know, I, I, I do still identify as a man and I can just define that for myself. Sure. I think, I think the art that you do does important work towards defining like a healthy, emotionally open masculinity. Thank you. That's all. I was just, I was just, I've just been thinking about that a lot. That's great. And as, you know, as the, as the father of an 11 year old son myself, um, I'm glad that I can try to portray that. Hopefully um, I'll give him the same model that my dad had. So you're raising son of Timescanner by yourself. Uh, he's at my house half of the time and his mom's house half of the time. So oh, okay. we're both, uh, we're both really involved parents. I was going to ask how the experience of single dadhood has influenced your art. Well, it's made me have to use my time when I'm not parenting more efficiently. Uh, I can't really dilly-dally around. I do sometimes, but then nothing gets done. It means that a lot of times I'm sleep-deprived while I'm making stuff because uh, making time comes out of sleep. But I, I think that it has probably given me more of, of a sense of I have to uh, have some sort of responsibility in what I'm saying. Not that, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be an after-school special ever, but I think that uh, I'm aware of the way things affect those around them and that there's a lot of stuff passing along crappy values in our world. Um, you know, if you have some ideas that you think are of value to other people that might be, throw them out there and uh, hopefully they'll catch the right ears and help someone along. What kind of music do you like? I mean, I have, a, I have a sense of what kind of music you like just through what you put into the infinite now, but I'm not sure if that's like the fullest representation of your aesthetic interest. I like a bit of everything. Um, I mean, I grew up in the 90s, so unfortunately my teenage years were devoted to lots of alternative rock, but I, like Fugazi and uh, all of the, the post-punk um, sort of bands uh, were a big influence in my younger years. And these days I listen to, you know what? I listen a lot to friends from the internet's work. Interesting. I like having your friend group be your media. I, you know, I used to always seek out the you know latest and greatest bands and, and musicians. Um, and in the end, like there's a sort of capitalist, uh, planned obsolescence that comes with the trends of music. So, you know, it could be that I'm keeping up with the hippest band and like, you know, six months from now, I, I don't really want to listen to them again. But when you have a relationship with the person you're listening to, uh, then that's entirely different. And so if I'm needing some new music, I'll just, you know, tweet out to uh, Twitter followers and say, Hey, who makes stuff? Send me a link to your music. And I think for the most part, that's the stuff I listen to these days. I, that's how I found the, the composers that make music for the infinite now, um, which is truly amazing stuff. And I, it makes me want to do a better job at what I'm doing to try to live up to the amazing music that they make. But, uh, on top of that, I happen to really like, uh, tiki bars. And so my, <laughs> yes. my kitchen is designed to be a tiki bar and I listen to exotica music while I cook dinner each night, which is sort of a 1940s white guy jazz. Like Les Baxter ritual of the savage, right? Right. Yeah. Which, uh, has, it's sort of like a mishmash of being vaguely foreign, but 
not at the same time. It's just sort of a satisfying, like I'm imagining that I'm drinking a Mai Tai on the beach sort of thing. I don't think I can overemphasize how well I think you would get along with Rich Wentworth oh, from yeah. Boston. I agree. Yeah, I've listened to some of his show, uh, Hatter and Gospel Hour, and I love it. Mm-hmm. And um, we've talked about tiki drinks online a bit. Uh, yeah, it seems like the, we are two Richards that really need to meet each other. Just like the degree to which you both share like a, a tiki-influenced, anti-capitalist, witchy aesthetic is really delightful to me. Perhaps we're alternate universe selves. Maybe, maybe, maybe you shouldn't meet. Maybe the the moment the two Richards come into contact... We'll shake hands and the universe will come to a close. Yeah, that's fine. We could do with a restart. (laughs) It's time to reboot. Reboot the younger cast. (laughs) So, Richard, what inspires you? Music inspires me. Um, People inspire me. Moving my body, like uh, dancing, is, uh, is something, like if I'm in a grumpy mood, I'm not able to make anything, and some days I'll be grumpy and I don't know why, and I'll just think to myself, wait, have you danced today? No. And, <laughs> you know, and you know, I don't go out to clubs or anything, you know, but uh, most of my dancing happens while I do dishes uh, and I cook dinner. So that's that's another way to be in your body doing something and It'll just sort of spark other thoughts in the background, just like we were talking about with while you're doodling in your physics notebook. Well, Richard, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I love it. This was really lovely, and you are welcome back anytime. Sweet. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, David. Cheers. You can find out more about Richard and The Infinite Now by going to theinfinitenow.org. You can also follow Richard on Twitter at Timescanner. If you subscribe to The Infinite Now, you'll hear an exclusive interview I did with the mysterious time scanner himself. Not Richard. I mean, like, the dude in the crystal spaceship. We talked about all kinds of stuff. Now, my friends, this episode of Radio Drama Revival has come to an end. But hey, we'll be back before you know it. Keep hanging in there. Tell your friends you love them. And keep your ears and your hearts open. Thanks for listening to Radio Drama Revival. If you like what you heard today, you know what to do. Head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review, pretty please. Now, it's time for some credits. The sweet music thumping beneath my words is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger of beautiful Oakland, California. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producers are Eli McElveen and Matthew Boudreaux. Eli was born on Proxima Centauri, approximately 3,600 years from now. He's visiting this timeline as a favor to me, although I'm not sure why. He says he'll tell me when I'm older. Matthew made $15 billion on the Beanie Baby circuit. He and his wife, Monique, live on a yacht in space. Our researchers are Monique Boudreaux and Heather Cohen. Monique, who, as I mentioned earlier, lives on a space yacht, breeds dinosaurs with meteors. I don't ask her how she does it, but they sure are beautiful and deadly. Heather is a small-time time thief. She makes off with little moments of your life while you're looking at your phone. So, look up! Smell a flower or some shit. But also, at the same time, follow me on Twitter, please, at Radio Drama. Okay, thanks, bye! Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge, who eats nothing but the marrow he peels out of the bones of dead stars. Celebrity diets, am I right? I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.